Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. In chapter 19, Jesus has been instructing his disciples on the subjects of marriage and divorce. And so it makes perfect sense that now we're given instructions about the care and custody of children. According to the Bible, children are the fruit of marriage and are called both a heritage and a reward in Psalm chapter 127, verse 3. So the psalmist, remember, writes, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. So in chapter 18, Jesus insisted that his disciples become converted, that they're changed, that they have a heart of humility, transparency, dependence, the heart of a child. Jesus has spoken about honesty and forgiveness, about reconciliation, about marriage and divorce. And children, and now the subject of bringing our children to Jesus comes up for blessing and for prayer. We understand that sometimes children are collateral damage when marriages fall apart when they experience the trauma of divorce. But according to the Bible, children are a treasure and the fruit of the womb a reward. I heard J. Vernon McGee in one of his broadcasts say one of the most terrifying and chilling things that I have ever heard. He said, my friends, there is something worse than going to hell. He said, it's going to hell holding the hand of your child. Those of us who are parents have a solemn charge to raise our children, to love Jesus, to respect God's word, to embrace God's principles. There's a story about a little girl who climbed up in the lap of her great-grandmother and she looked at her great-grandmother's shock of white hair and deep, deep wrinkles. And she said, did God make you? And she smiled and she said, yes, dear. And the little girl said, did God make me too? And the, the great-grandmother said, why, why yes, of, of course. And then the little girl said, don't you think he's doing a better job now than he used to? Our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren afford us with immeasurable opportunities to tell them the truth about God and Jesus and the Bible. We're supposed to provide them wisdom and guidance. 
We're supposed to help them to live a godly life in an ungodly world. We're to bring our children to Jesus. But there are hindrances in bringing our children to Christ. Look first at verse 13. It says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but his disciples rebuked them. The little children are brought to Jesus for blessing and for prayer. In Luke's gospel, in the parallel account, in Luke chapter 18, verse 15, the wording is, they kept on bringing even their infants, that translates the word babies. The suggestion is that they're bringing babies to Jesus for approval. Mothers and fathers brought their children in the form of dedication and those of you who come here you realize that throughout the years parents will will bring their parents forward and we'll pray for them we have what we call a baby dedication but in a very real sense we're not simply dedicating the baby to the Lord we're dedicating the parents to the Lord to bring up the children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord the word then little children translates a Greek word, pedia. Some of you know that word. The, the, the word pediatrician has come down in our language. It's, it's a doctor who ministers to children. In the ancient world, it was a reference to children who could range in age from babies to preteens. Both Mark and Luke use an imperfect verb tense, They were bringing. The idea is it was a continuous procedure. It it was something that was taking place over an extended period of time. And those gospels were left with the impression that they kept bringing their children and they just kept on coming. We're all fond of singing and saying, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. And then we read these sad words. But the disciples rebuked them. And were taken aback. Why in the world would the disciples do such a thing? Did they resent the intrusion? Did they think the children unworthy of Christ's notice or time or concern? And of course, the response is surprising in light of Christ's earlier illustration. When Jesus asked them, who then is greatest in the kingdom? And you'll remember in Matthew chapter 18, it says, and Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst. How is it possible that they could have forgotten the lesson so soon? We have to remember that that culture was very patriarchal. In the ancient world, men came first. Women came a distant second. And children were often thought of as to be seen but but not heard. And whatever the priorities were, men came first and women came second. We would be making a serious mistake, though, if we thought that women were unloved or that children were never cared for. That's not 
actually what happened in the ancient world. But sometimes misplaced priorities will cause people to see parents or children as unwelcome drains. And of course we're left with the impression that Jesus is gentle and tender and gracious and kind towards children. Did the disciples suspect some impure motive on, on the part of the parents? We're not told. Jesus doesn't rebuke the parents or resist the blessing. In the ancient cultures, it wasn't unusual for parents to bring children to respected rabbis for prayers and for blessings. You may have grown up in a religious tradition where that was a part of your life, where people would bring their children to church or they would bring them to the priest or to the pastor for prayer and for blessing. The Talmud encouraged this behavior so that children would grow strong in the principles of the law and be faithful in marriage and then known by good works or good deeds. There could be any number of reasons why the disciples were hindering the children. It might have been inconvenience, it might have been time, it might have been mission, it might have been priorities. But we know that for the most part, children love to hear about Jesus. We must bring them to Christ. But children, like all human beings, have a fallen nature. They have a bent towards sin. Many parents come to church exhausted from work, anxious over finances, disillusioned with the task of parenting. Other, children, other people manage to stay away from church. One of my big concerns is to not preach or teach to people who aren't here. That's not my job and that's not my concern. But parents find lots and lots of reasons to keep their children from church. Now, again, the text doesn't say, bring your children to church. The text says, bring your children to Jesus. One of the interesting things about the text is that the source of the hindrance isn't coming from the parents. The source of the hindrance is coming from Jesus' own disciples. We would be making a serious mistake if we didn't actually look at ourselves for just a moment and ask ourselves the hard question. Are we as a church making it easier or harder to bring our children to Jesus? Are we as a church helping parents or hindering parents, equipping parents or being dismissive of parents. On behalf of the church, I, I actually do want to plead not guilty to the charge of hindering your children from coming to Christ. We want your children to come to Christ. We make every effort to love them and encourage them and provide resources for them. In the history of our church, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, in the last 25 years, our children have grown up to become pastors 
and teachers and missionaries. Some of our children are now worship leaders. Some of our children have grown up to become doctors and lawyers. Some of our children have grown up to become scientists. They have made incredible contributions to art and to literature. But the most important thing that we can do to our children is to teach them to know Jesus and love Jesus. If I'm wrong, I'm open to rebuke and correction. Some would argue that our own culture, like that of the ancient Israel, has its focus first on grown men and women and children last. Again, in the text, the parents want to bring their children to Jesus. But maybe that's not true in our culture and society. Is it possible that there are more and more moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas where the, the home hasn't become so much father-centered or mother-centered, but child-centered? Much of our activities center around our children. We work to live in the best neighborhoods and send our, our children to the best schools and, and participate in the best activities. And I'm not suggesting that you not work hard. And I'm not suggesting that you not raise your children in good homes. And I'm not suggesting even for a moment that you deny your children intellectual or educational or, or sports activities. It's not wrong to want to give your children everything that's going to be best for them. But how is it that knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and embracing Jesus always somehow gets pushed to the bottom of the list? Most pastors in churches are tempted to beg parents to bring their children to church. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not begging you to bring your children to church. I'm begging you to bring them to Christ. And please don't misunderstand me. I want you to bring your children to church. We want to provide age-appropriate instruction and encouragement to your church. We always and everywhere and every time under every circumstance want to point our children to Jesus, to love Jesus, to respect God's word and embrace God's principles for abundant life. Again, in our text, the parents want to bring their children to Jesus for prayer and blessing. But in our culture, more and more parents are making the decision to allow their children to make up their own mind. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. Or maybe you even became a parent like that. Maybe you didn't grow up in a world where people loved Jesus in your household. And for whatever reason, going to church or being a part of a, of a family of, of God was never an important part of your life. And so your home became not a Christ-centered home, but a child-centered home. Now, less than one-third of America's population bring their children to church. In his book, The Heart of Anger, Lou Priolo provides a very brief list of behaviors that point 
to a child-centered home. He says, almost certainly you have a child-centered home if the child interrupts adults when they're talking. They use manipulation and rebellion to get their way. They dictate the family schedule, mealtime, bedtime, when you're going to church or when you're not going to church. They, the child takes precedence over the needs of the spouse. The child has an equal or an overriding vote in decision making. The child demands excessive time and attention from parents. And then Lupriolo adds to the detriment of other biblical responsibilities which the parent has. The child escapes the consequences of their sinful and irresponsible behavior. They speak to the parents as though they're peers. They're the dominant influence in the home. They are entertained and coddled rather than disciplined out of a bad mood. How does that differ from a child-centered home? Well, remember the child sent the, the Christ-centered, how does that differ from a Christ-centered home? The Christ-centered home is actually modeled from what we've already learned in Matthew chapter 19 from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where Jesus has already been talking about marriage, where he says that a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman, and the two shall become one, joined. Two people become a family in the Bible before any children are born, except in cultures where out-of-wedlock births continue to grow and expand and rise as people abandon the biblical view of marriage and the biblical view of commitment. Does that mean that we're to be unwelcome to them or to their children? The answer, of course, is no. The parents are the decision makers in the new family unit. The family isn't a democracy. The husband and wife are joint heirs with Christ, with the husband as head and the wife as helper. Children are born welcome in the family, but not as co-equal decision makers or partners in the physical, spiritual, emotional, and financial responsibilities. So many parents are willing to allow their children to have all of the privileges of adulthood without any of the responsibilities. So the God-centered home, the Christ-centered home, is where everyone is pleased and committed to serving the Lord. Doesn't that make sense to you? Serving the Lord. Not serving the husband, not serving the wife, not serving the child. The Lord's desires are exalted over everyone's desires. Again, does this mean that we ignore our children or God forbid that we abuse our children? And of course the answer is no! Listen to this tragic letter. Dear Ann Landers, I'm writing from behind bars. The charge? A felony. Child molesting. Not a pleasant subject, I realize. But this letter is not being written to be pleasant or to gain sympathy. You've never seen me in the parks or near playgrounds looking for victims. I don't play ball and I don't give out candy. Candy. 
I don't leer at children or stare at them, yet I've never lacked for victims. I've held several positions of responsibility working with the public. You've probably met me and liked me. Your children have learned that I can fix a bike and will talk to them when no one else has time to listen. When mom was too busy or dad was too tired, they came to me. I know more about your children's teachers and their school problems than you because they knew I was interested. The two little girls I molested can never regain what was taken from them. And I'm going to spend the next five years in prison. I'm going to make a note. Not enough time. He writes, I was molested as a child and feel certain that at least two of my victims will grow up to be molesters. I'm sick at heart, but the damage is done and I can't undo it. The next time your child has something to tell you, don't be too busy to listen. Ask yourself, if I won't listen, who will? It seems odd to me that people will take the advice of a child molester when it's appropriate, but they'll ignore what the Bible has to say and what the Bible requires. Is it possible that churches can hinder Children from coming to the Lord? I think that the answer is probably yes. Is it possible that parents can hinder their children from coming to Jesus? And I think that the answer is yes. If parents don't love Jesus, if the parents don't respect God's word, if the parents won't embrace biblical principles in the home, the chances increase dramatically, but neither will your children. What do you say to a child who doesn't want to go to church? You know, this is a question that I get asked a whole lot. And the answer, of course, is this is what we do as a family. Our children, we go to church. My children grew up in a home where, fortunately or unfortunately, their, their dad was the pastor. They had to go to church. We knew from the very beginning that our life would be a life that was going to be different, just like today. Last Sunday, it was Christmas Day. We went to church. Today is New Year's Day. We go to church. That's what we do. We know that times change. We know that not too many years ago, minding one's children didn't mean obeying them. And so we help our children come to Christ. Look what it says in verse 14. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The construction in the original language is absolutely interesting. Let alone is in the aorist tense, but do not hinder is in the present tense with a negative. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it indicates a call to action, a call to stop something immediately, to drop everything and then stop one thing and do another. In effect, this is what Jesus is saying. 
allow the children to come to me starting now. It's very easy to miss the emphasis that Jesus is giving. You may have found reason after reason and excuse after excuse and difficulty after difficulty, but Jesus says, stop it. Stop it right now. And then he says, don't stop them from coming to me. This is a double command, by the way. The double command is, let the children come. The second command is, don't forbid them. Implicit in both commands is a strong warning. The way that I'm going to hopefully explain the warning to you is this. I think in the broadest terms possible, we can take this to mean don't forbid anyone from coming to Jesus. If a person wants to come to Christ, if a person wants to know Jesus, to, to love him and serve him, to have their sins forgiven, why in the world would you stop that from happening? And most certainly, don't hinder children from having that happen. We could put it a little bit differently. Help children come to Christ. Help them. What do we say to the parent who says, well, you know, I don't want to cram religion down the throat of my child. You say, we say, everything you say and do is giving your child a sense of what is real and what is important, what is valuable and what isn't valuable. You're teaching your children at this very moment by everything you say and everything that you do. Nobody is for a moment suggesting you cram Jesus down your children's throat. Jesus is saying, bring them to me. And you know why that's such an important point? Because when you bring your child to Jesus, Jesus is winsome and lovely. Jesus is gracious and kind. Jesus is generous. Bring them to me. Don't forbid them. By the way, excuse is a form of prohibition. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 14, we read, but when Jesus saw it, this is the same thing. He was greatly displeased. The word displeased probably isn't powerful enough. Read angry. Read indignant. And by the way, when you in the New Testament see Jesus angry and indignant, you should pay close attention. On those rare occasions when the scripture says he's angry, it's usually because he strongly feels a particular way about a particular thing. Jesus was very angry when the religious leaders misrepresented God to people who were looking for God. Jesus was very angry when people trivialized what he loves and cares about. And he cares about the children. 
He's angry because he has little patience for people who consider children non-essential, unimportant, a waste of time. No doubt Jesus was angry because of the presumption of the people who believed that they had every right to keep their children from him. And in order to be true to the text, we have to say, in this instance, it was the presumption that the disciples made that Jesus either didn't care or he just didn't have time. There are several things that we can glean from the words of Jesus. The first is the importance of reaching children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their minds are receptive and their minds are open. There's so much research and writing that's been done on this subject. Do you realize that the time period when a child is most likely to receive Christ as their savior is before they're 10 years old? And if you go past 10 to 12, and then from 12 to 15, and then from 15 to 20, and 25 to 30, and 35 to 40, and 45 to 50, if you go past 50 years old, the chances of you coming to Christ are quite literally like 1 in 100,000. So by the way, if you're old and unsaved, there's still a chance for you. But it's a slim chance. It's a diminishing chance. Children are open to the Lord. They're receptive to the gospel. Can you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ in a simple way, so simple that even a child can understand it? Can you communicate with them what it means, what kind of God is God, why sin is a problem, and why Jesus is the solution to the problem. All the evidence indicates that children are open to Jesus. They're trusting and dependent. Second, children want to confess their faith in the Lord Jesus, and they should be given the opportunity to do so. We need to find ways to be able to tell our children and give our children to talk about what Jesus means to them. How Jesus loves them. They should be encouraged and not discouraged. And third, no one, no one knows the age when a child is first qualified to go to hell. I'm often asked, at what age does a child become responsible for his or her sin? Will children automatically go to heaven? I'm happy to answer those questions. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it right now, but I would encourage you to, to go to gotquestions.org. Just type in those questions. Or if you're in a part of a small group, you might want to talk about those questions. Some children are incapable of exercising either faith or even willful unbelief. Does God have a special mercy? Does he impart special grace because of age or, or because of diminished mental capacities? What does the Lord do with the innocent? 
Innocent in this case doesn't mean free from Adam's sin or moral corruption or the sin nature. By innocent, I mean a child who doesn't really literally know the difference between left and right and, and right and wrong. We're given clues in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, where we read the horrible story of David and Bathsheba. You know the story, how he gets a woman pregnant, how he has her husband murdered, how she in her pregnancy gives birth to the child, but God is going to issue a judgment on the child. And sure enough, the judgment takes place as the child is going to die. And David pleads and cries and he cries out to God. And then he discovers that the child dies. And he gets up and he washes his face and he combs his hair. And people were terrified to approach David. But when he got up and he washed his face and he combed his hair, he said to his family, the child is gone. The child won't come to me. I will go to the child. It gives us a, a clue, a glimpse into the heart of God, into the mind of God, into the grace of God, into the mercies of God. We want our children to understand the horror of sin and the salvation that's provided to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would be shocked and surprised how early a child begins to understand that what they've done is wrong. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and you become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 10, 15, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. In both Mark and Luke's Gospels, we learn that unless one receives the kingdom as a little child, he won't be able to enter in. The Lord says, for such or of such is the kingdom of heaven. The citizens in the kingdom of heaven, they're weak, they're vulnerable, they're dependent. It must have brought great joy to Jesus to spend time with the children who have such a simplicity of faith and dependence and trust. The New Testament provides a sharp contrast between the religious leaders' unbelief and blindness with the simple faith of a child for those who trust him. It becomes kind of an interesting question. Who do you like to spend time with? The skeptic, the unbeliever, or the child? We love our children. We love our grandchildren. We love to spend time with them. But truth be known, sometimes their company wears thin. But guess what? They need our love. They need our support. They need our guidance. They need our grace. It's easy to get frustrated. 
In verse 15 it says, And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. The text leaves us with the impression that Jesus laid hands on them one by one. He laid his hands on them. This would have certainly taken time. In Mark's gospel, again, we're given an additional clue in chapter 10, verse 16, where we read, And he, that is Jesus, took them up in his arms. He put his hands on them and blessed them. In Mark's gospel, there's this sense of urgency and energy. The picture isn't just children lining up. The, the picture is Jesus taking each individual child one at a time hugging them holding them praying for them blessing them Jesus is never too tired he always has enough energy he'll always keep watch and so we have to bring our our children to Jesus and where do we find Jesus where do we find him? It seems obvious to say the Bible, and that's an obvious answer, but I'm going to give you another place where they might look, and that's in you, inside of you, Jesus in you. Read the Bible with your child. Explain the Bible with your child. Live the Bible with your child. But sometimes bringing, again, a child to Jesus means you being faithful to Jesus in the way that you live your life. I read an interesting article from an unknown author. It says, when you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you hang my first painting on the refrigerator. And I wanted to paint another. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you feed a stray cat, and I thought it would be good to be kind to animals. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you make my favorite cake for me, and I knew that little things are special things. When you thought I wasn't looking, I heard you pray, and I believe there's a God that I could always talk to. When you thought I wasn't looking, I felt you kiss me goodnight, and I felt loved. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw tears come from your eyes, and I learned that sometimes things hurt. And you made it, made me want to... He says, I saw tears in your eyes. And, and when you thought I wasn't looking, I saw, I always did my best. That's what it says. I wasn't looking. I saw, I always did your best. And you made me want to be all that I could be. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you give someone needy. And I learned the joy of giving. When you thought I wasn't looking, I heard you say thank you. And I wanted to say thanks for all the things that I saw when you thought I wasn't looking. Because even when you think they're not looking, they're looking. And they're looking at you. 
Well, what if I don't have children? Would you please pray and think about getting involved in children's life? It could be the children's ministry. It could be involved in, in child evangelism. It could be finding a way into their lives. But whatever else you do, remember, God's calling you to have a Christ-centered home rather than a child-centered home. Moms, dads, grandma, grandpa, read the Bible with your child. Explain the Bible to your child. But most of all, live the Bible with your child. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have Carolyn and the rest of the team come back up. But we're going to have communion, and I, I just want you to uh, take a little time right now. We're going to pray. You know, this week as I was praying and considering the new year, again, I was reminded that God sent Jesus to save sinners. You see, God didn't simply send Jesus to make your life better, to make your marriage better, to make your family better. By the way, when you do come to Christ, I think all of those things do get better. But the primary reason that God sends Jesus, the suffering lamb, is so that the Father can give to the Son everything that he deserves. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that every single person that Jesus died for will come to him, will love him, will believe him, will receive him. So we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for your family. And I'm going to pray for your new year. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you again, Lord. Lord, I pray for the families in our church and the marriages in our church and the children in our church. Lord, I pray that we would not find reasons to hinder them, but reasons to help them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal to us as moms and dads, but also as a church, what we can do to help children come to know Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will strengthen us for the task at hand. And again, Father, we thank you for this time and this new year, for the opportunity to have communion together. Lord, we're reminded of what the scriptures say, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you. And again, the Bible says that he took the cup and he, he said, this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which would be shed 
for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we remember what Jesus has done for us. The sacrificed lamb. The suffering lamb. The servant who comes and dies in our place. So that we could make the great exchange. That we could exchange our sinful life for Jesus' righteous life. That we could exchange our empty life for a full life. That we could exchange our limited life for eternal life. And so Lord, again, we renew our commitment to you. Lord, we don't want to make a foolish resolution or an untrue vow. And yet, Lord, we pray that by our Holy, your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you will give us the strength and the courage to love you and to walk into the future with you and to continue to minister to our children and our grandchildren. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together.